0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Well, the Six Nations is well underway even after one round. Scotland got their campaign off to a perfect start beating England... 2017 at Murrayfield. Making it back-to-back Calcutta Cup wins for the first time since 1984. We'll be recapping the game in detail and where it was won and lost with the Telegraph's Charlie Morgan and also to my co-host this afternoon Chris Robshaw, the former Queens and England captain. Elsewhere there were convincing wins for both Ireland and France who will feature each other this weekend in Paris. We'll discuss which of those sides are in better shape ahead of the big one and if the winner of Saturday's game will be favourites to win the Six Nations. We'll also recap the weekend's action in the Premiership. Manu Tuilagi made his comeback for sale, and we'll be answering your questions too. And there were quite a few, as you would expect this weekend. Delighted to welcome alongside me for the first time the former England captain, Chris Robshaw. Hello, Chris.
1: Hi, Brian. Thank you very much for having me. Tell everyone what you're doing. So I'm playing over in San Diego. Uh, we had our first... MLR game yesterday of the season, which we won thirty one twenty nine. Um so yeah, I'm a little bit sore this morning.
2: What's the standard like, do you reckon?
1: You know what, it's it's competitive. Mm-hmm. It's look, it's not what it is back in the Premiership or in France or Japan or something like that, but it's competitive and it's a good level. And even seeing it this year in the first game and a couple of practice games compared to last season, it's it improving. because improving 'cause you're mm-hmm. getting the American guys are getting better. Uh, there's more foreign guys, guys like myself, who are probably a little bit towards the end of their careers, or maybe some young guys who haven't quite made it in the English setup or the French setup or something like that. So you're getting guys from around the world and trying to trying to help the game grow and help teams evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the games are a good
2: standard. Good. Well, look, let's go to the Calcutta Cup. Um, I had the feeling, sat there um, in in co-commentary, that. The England forwards had done a really good job over the first 40 and then 15 of the next sort of uh, f- uh, third quarter to finally get on top of the Scots. And although they'd not put the points on that they might have done, there were reasons for that, but essentially they were controlling the game. And then it, the last 15 minutes, it just seemed to drift away. Not not just the Luke Cowan which we could come on to, but... In other terms, what do you think went wrong for them? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure because I watched the game and we kind of watched the first
1: half and then went went and trained it, and I saw the scoreline and we had a guy called Scott Murray at our club who's our forwards coach, an old Scottish guy. And I was like, it's game over now. I can see the momentum going. The, the Scots are starting to fade a little bit. Uh, the English side has grown in confidence. They've kind of... Because they had so much territory, so much possession. I felt potentially they... They lacked a bit of oomph up front. Whether that's someone like a Courtney Laws was missing, a Manu Tuilangi was missing, just getting that extra yard over the game line, a Sam Underhill, these type of players who are so so valuable. And it's probably not until they don't play you realise how important they are.
2: You know, Mark. I mean, you know Marcus Smith very well. Um, mm-hmm. What did you make of his performance? What do you make of his uh, the decision from, from Eddie Jones to to change him for George Ford? Yeah,
1: look, I can see I can see why he's done that. Um, you think of someone like George Ford coming on and the experience he has to control control the game and close out. But from a Marcus point of view, for a Six Nations debut up in Murrayfield, which can be a hostile place, especially when the conditions were as they were and pretty miserable. And I think everyone knows Marcus for his attack and flair and his ability. But I think he controlled the game really well. Like I said, I think the territory focus was there. They played a lot in Scotland's half. They didn't overplay in their own half. Uh, and to score
2: 17 points on your debut... In the Six Nations wasn't bad. Well, that's my point. Yeah, we know what George Ford can do, but we also know what Mark Smith, Marcus Smith can do and was doing. And at some point, you know, you have to have faith in, to me, you have to have faith in, in, in the guy and say, look, continue, play the whole 80. Why not? You know, get the experience of playing the whole 80. Because unless it's automatic and it's rote condition um, substitutions, you couldn't, for me say that he'd done anything that suggested he couldn't carry on doing that.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I think we've, it's always one of those ones. I remember I used to have this chat with Dean Richards as a, as a young player at Quint when he was coach at Quint. And whenever there was a big game, even kind of my first year of breaking through, he would go for one of the older, more experienced back rows. And he's like, oh, we're going for experience this week. And every week I'd be like, well, how do I get experience if I don't play? <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it's that type of thing which... Again, in a hostile environment, being able to close that game. You look at what they did. I know it's back at Twickenham against South Africa, closing out that game, coming from behind. You think that whole young England side has grown a lot. So to then go to Murrayfield and potentially do the same, it's just another another thing for them. But it's tough. And I'm sure you've been in, I don't know if you were, but when you lose that first game in the Six Nations, it it can be quite demoralising. Because you know there's, there's no Grand Slam and you're waiting for someone else to slip up. As much as you want to go out there now and, and get five points every game, your fate is in someone else's hands.
2: I mean, they're lucky in this sense. They've got Italy next and they will beat Italy. They've never lost to Italy. Yeah. Um. So they're going to be... But that goes on to another uh, point I wanted to make. I look, I mean, you've been in this situation <laughs> in the 2015 World Cup. Do you kick for the corner? Do you kick for goal? Actually, very similar kick it was going to be, wasn't it, from around the sort of 10-metre line... There. Uh, the thing is, I'd seen Elliot Daly uh, practicing before the game, and he knocked one over from 60 yards, 10-meter line, and not just over. So it was definitely within his range. And I was thinking at the time, look, if he gets this fine, the ball comes back to you, three minutes to go. If he do not get it, they're going to drop out. So you're going to get the ball back at least once. Um, if you get the three points – sorry, if you get the the, the draw – you're then going into the third game, having beaten Italy, which you will do, um, with possibly six points but no defeats. And then you've got the gambling position. You know, I know what decision you made. What, uh, d- what goes through, what were the considerations, do you think? D- did they think where we are in the table after three games we might be? Or did you just think at the time, this is the instant game, I'm making the, ga- the game decision irrespective of anything else?
1: Yeah, look, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And, oh, yeah. And I've been through it, like you said, uh, massively looking back to 2015 and that. And look, I won't criticise anyone for that because I'm sure they, they backed themselves, they backed their skill, their, their mall was going pretty well, all this type of stuff. Uh, and then it comes down to executing. You know, then it's trying to execute the, the right player at the and right time. And
2: th- this is another point, Chris, because at that point, Charlie Ewells had come on. Your best line-out forward is, he told you, and you don't throw to him. And it goes wrong. Now, to me, in, a, in the lineup, you have to win. You've got to throw to your best jumper, and it didn't happen for whatever reason. And it went wrong, and we didn't get the ball. So, if you made that decision, I, I would say don't compound it by, by 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 trying to throw to a guy who, who's only you know he's only just come on relatively recently, Jamie George. I, I don't know if
1: I don't know if I agree with that, Brian. Yep. To be honest, because if if you're defending a line-out, who are you going to mark? You're going to mark their best, their best jumper, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You're going to bag that. Who are you going to throw it to? Like you said, you just thought that, okay, pressure moment, throw it to your best. But if everyone's going to mark that, because everyone does, because that's their thought process as well. Mm-hmm. So Charlie Uls is a fantastic line-out operator as well. You look at the line-out, you look at England's line-out generally, it's, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good well, line Well, it's out been very good up to then. Jump.
2: Certainly driving malls have been good as well.
1: Yeah, and that comes down to potentially a pressure play, doesn't it? Yep. And I know when we've done these pressure plays in the past, where it's a last play of training, you have to score it. You have to score. Maybe they would have practiced. I know, Cameron Dickey went off, and Joe Marla had the throw, and it, it didn't go to plan. Um, and he had a bit of a joke about it after. But they would practice stuff like that for those scenarios, um, and they would have put like last play of the game. Here we go. We've got to score regardless of what happens, training's done after.
2: Chris, talking about, talking about the, the Marla throwing in, before that even happened, don't you see when Count Dicky goes off, because um, there was a bit of a, a hiatus, because they, they spent a couple of minutes looking at the replays, and it should have been obvious to everyone he was going off. So someone from the bench see me saying, get Jimmy George on now. Because if he has to come back on, and we have to play one of them in the back row, fine, but we don't want anyone having I mean, to throw a ball into a line-out that hasn't done it. And even if you do have to throw a ball into a line-out, wouldn't it have been a better options? Because you're on the five and they've got to stay back ten. To get Ben Youngs to stand at the front and throw it over the back with a pass?
1: Yeah, I mean, Joe would have been the person who would have practised that and they would have thought, kind of looking at that side, he was the best option in that lineup. Yes, they could have brought Jamie on to do it. But generally... If there hasn't been a scrum, you don't. And I don't know if you've seen whether that been premiership games or international games, you tend to rely on the people on the field to throw. And someone of yourself, it is such a fine skill. It's such a controlled movement. It's such an isolated moment. which Chris, If anyone's practised it, it's hard.
2: Chris, oh it's no, hard. I know it is, Chris. And that's absolutely fine, provided you get a line out anywhere else but on your own five-yard line, which just yeah. happened to be the one, didn't it? It just happened to and be it, the
1: one. It wasn't Joe's uh, best friend. So well, it, wouldn't,
2: it wouldn't have made that. any difference where he'd thrown it because Alex came so far over the five metre line that you mm. know he, he caught it after three, so it doesn't matter where Joe really threw it. Look, what do you think the mood in the camp will be be, be like? Because, to be honest, England had, had, had lots of things, no, just a couple of things, and we were talking about the first Scottish try, which, was it a quick line-out, wasn't it? If it was a quick line-out, it shouldn't have been allowed. Um... Narrowly lost, uh, an experiment—not an experimental team, but certainly a much changed team. What will their what will their mood be like? Do you think?
1: No, I thought even going into this series, the Six Nations campaign, I don't think it was going to be a Grand Slam year for anyone. No, I think the, the field is so competitive this year that anyone can beat anyone. Of course, home advantage is is huge, um, and as you know, when you look back to the Six Nations and the ones I've been involved with. You look back at the potential of missing out on a grand slam because you lost one game. And that can come down to one missed tackle, one bounce of a ball. A bad, one a bad bit. 10 minutes. Is, that's
2: all you have to have.
1: Bad, well, not even that. Not even that. Yeah. One one phase of play. And that's why people love this competition. That's why the players love it. That's why people love watching it. So look, they're going to, of course, probably be sulking a bit this weekend. And rightly so. They'll know they could have could have been, and should have hopefully got the right result up there for that. But they're going to come back into Italy. Look, they're going to go to Italy and they're going to get a comfortable bonus point win. I've no doubt about yeah. that. I'm sure he's going to play the same team or his strongest team because if not, you have three weeks between games, yeah. which is too long to go. Just just very um, quickly, so-
2: Chris, just very quickly on this one. Scotland, and it, I mean, it is cul- consecutive, Calcutta Cup of Wins. The, the, that's not the point for me. The point is... In, in the past, when this has gone against them, they've, they've contrived a way to not quite do it, and this time they did. Um, and I, I think they should be, they should be satisfied with nothing less than at least a tilt at the title. They might not get it, but at least be in a position where the final game comes, where they are contesting it.
1: Yeah, and rightly so. And I think a massive amount. I know we've spoken a lot about England here, but credit must go to Scotland because. They they were probably favourites and they won. Yeah, and I think having that title at Murrayfield, and I know they've had the success over England in the last couple of years, but there's pressure in that in themselves. Yep. Uh, Finn Russell controlled it well. Uh, White came on and of course his, his try was great, but he played well as well. Um, and they were excellent, and I don't think you can take anything away from them. And and for them now, it's about can they back it up for the next four games. Uh, and that's something which when I look at the field and I look at this kind of Six Nations campaign and I know we're going to go into the France and Ireland and all that and you look can France do that we know we have that that ability to to shoot for the stars and reach it but also they can not play as well Ireland tend to have that consistency can Scotland now produce that level for the next four games because that, that's that's how hard this competition is
2: Why don't we discuss uh, some more of the technical details about the Calcutta Cup game with The Telegraph's senior rugby writer, Charlie Morgan. I've seen your stuff, as you always do, about the breakdown of various ploys and plays in games. Always very, very interesting. Um, just, But just a general point, what was your overall reaction to, the, to, the, to Scotland's win?
0: I think with a few hours' notice, it was kind of... How quickly the narrative shifts. I think just to take you behind the curtain. I was kind of um, f- when um, Sam, Skim- Sam Simmons sprinted across to tackle Dwan van der Merwe and Tom Curry got that jackal penalty and Marcus Smith kicked it for seventeen ten. I had I was almost kind of resigned to the fact that it had been a really steely, gritty away performance from England in which a lot of the kind oh. of a lot of the tactical a lot of their tactical approach had come off. And then with that last 15 minutes and, and a bit of an implosion in some areas, just within big moments, the whole thing flips. And that's just the nature of the Six Nations, isn't it? We talk about momentum the whole time, yeah. but that's now flipped the way that they're now fighting to get some sort of foothold in this in this competition, whereas Scotland are on a high now going to Wales who look vulnerable, and then all of that kind of snowballs. But actually, I thought that Scotland... For the for the manner in which they stood up in in their two tries, probably exemplified it. Well, first of all, let's talk about the defence. Steve Tandy is just creating something really special there. Um, mm-hmm. But also the way that they stood up in two big moments for their two tries, two really contrasting tries, one really, really clever set play and then one, one, two kick passes in a row from Finn Russell.
2: We mentioned Steve Tandy. One of the seminal moments was also the only real chance that England fashioned in the first half was that great driving... Uh, more from the line out, which they, they just managed to held up, hold up at the last moment.
0: Darcy Graham involved in that as well what game he had but yep. and also and what a kind of advert he is for sevens too he was um, there for the jackal turnover at the end wasn't he and that's what people sometimes maybe don't realize is that those clo- those skills in really close areas that's, that's what sevens really hones as well as as well as the poise in mm-hmm. space which he showed for that first try. he had a fa- he had a just a phenomenal game.
2: Let's go down to the, 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 the first try. I, look, I, I put my hands up. I missed it. Uh, but, but then again, f- fair play to me. So did, so did Nigel Owens. So did everyone else in the comms and everyone else in the England camp because the quick line-out, which was described by Andrew Cotto as a quick line-out, um, if it was classed as a quick line-out, it should not have been allowed because it wasn't only that the ball had been handled by someone else because the first ball that went into touch was caught by a ball boy and then transferred. But it was a second ball that was given to the hooker anyway. So you're not allowed to take one. And also, as everyone knows, what happens is the assistant marks the uh, touchline and then he steps away from the middle to allow the hooker to stand in the middle and then take a step to his right or left, obviously to his own side, which he shouldn't do. But that's what happens. And the throw from the Scottish hooker went over... The, the, the assistant referee, who looked up, really surprised, thinking, what is going on? I haven't given the mark. And yet it, it went on. So was it a quick line-out? Wasn't it? If, it? if it was a quick line-out, I mean, do you, if it wasn't a quick line-out, if it was a quick line-out, it shouldn't have been allowed. It's as simple as that. If it, But was it or wasn't it? It wasn't. I think it was a quickly
0: taken line-out. If the differentiation... If, if the differentiation um, <laughs> Yeah, it was, Nick, it, was Nick, it was Nick Berry on that side, wasn't it? There were a few clues as to, as to it being a premeditated ploy. Um, one of them was George Turner, the hooker, being in the backfield from the chase, which you know you very rarely see a front row in the chase. Sometimes Ellis Genge stays back there for Tigers and he has done for England just to get a big run-up on those carries from the backfield if, if clearances go in field. So he was there. They're anticipating a clearance directly to touch by England. But the other, the other big clue was that referee Ben O'Keefe I think he'd been told that, that Scotland were really keen to play at pace at every opportunity, especially from those line-outs um, after England exits. And he was watching to see the England players join um, that line-out. And it was Maratoji and Ellis Gaines. You only need two players from the defence, as you know,
2: I'm sure, Brian. Well, there were, there were more than two, there were at least four. Yeah,
0: so so there it's, it's, it's a, it, you're, you're viable to go for, for a regular line-out, but you're going quickly. And now that throw probably went about four and three-quarter metres to Ritchie at the front, didn't it? But it meant that Scotland were in midfield straight away and then that's where they could really catch, um, catch England out and on that bounce back, straight back to the short side. I asked um, Stuart Hogg and Gregor Townsend afterwards about it and the, and the ploy and how, what they'd maybe seen with England. Stuart Hogg, very tight-lipped, didn't want to get any, give anything away at all, but Gregor Townsend said it was just all about pace and all about... And it, it, his quote, which I loved, was... We wanted to play with speed, and sometimes when you play at speed, you're not organised yourselves. But all you have to be is more organised than the defence, and they and they certainly were.
2: Yeah, and when, and when you're talking about did it, didn't it cost England? Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, may, look, maybe it should have been allowed, maybe it shouldn't. But it wasn't as if it was a five metre one; and they dropped over the line. You know, England had a chance to defend that when it went back blind. It was four against three. They had one man overlap, but it was a very short, tight blindside. And if Marrow had told you he'd stayed in the line and shuffled across, they probably wouldn't have gone anywhere because there was enough cover. Because it was a long way out, it was near a 10 metre line. Because Marrow shot out and he, went, went, and he didn't get either man or ball, it then left four against two. And Nick Ezekie was the next one. You know, and then you've got a mismatch between Strum, you know, And that, that was in the end, that defensive bit was the thing that caused the break, that caused the try
0: yeah and, and and but that had been that there's all sort of these ripple effects going on and that had been caused initially by Finn Russell carrying on in the same direction to bait those defenders around the corner and the whole narrative of the week had been how England were out to hunt um Finn Russell so when actually um Stuart Hogg faded behind Russell and Scotland had that option um, for that bounce back you're always going to get a slightly lighter kind of defensive line and actually there was a big gap um to to Carl Sinclair's right um which could have which could have broken England as well. And I thought Itoji actually made a pretty sound decision. Actually, because it, because England was so so we're in such deep trouble, and he near, and he nearly broke down that attack by getting to Hog, but because Hog threatened his outside shoulder, that fixed uh, Nick Azique a little bit more, and that was what opened up the, the gap for Graham, whose line was brilliant. And then the, he still had more to do. This is this is the thing. And Greg Townsend spoke afterwards about that that try, there being so many fine margins involved. The last sort of fine mar- margin involved was um, Darcy Graham staying on his feet and being able to beat Joe Marchant um, so that he yeah. had the one-on-one and then um, Ben White steaming through to get a second touch. Um, that was an excellent support line and a really cool story.
2: You talked about Joe Marchant. Um, of course, he gets dragged across for the kick that preceded the kick that went to Luke calland Otherwise, he would have been under the ball, and as we know, he's very comfortable under the ball. Um, why do you think he, he, he felt the need to be dragged across there?
0: Well, I think I think the, the the initial kick pass didn't it from from Russell to Van der Vander Van der caught the ball and then beat Malins, and then he threatened to beat Stewart too. So on that on that backfield pendulum, um, Joe Marchant really had to come all the way across, and that's yeah. kind of okay. <clears throat> it's not necessarily the kind of sexiest thing to say or the sexiest thing to see if you're watching if watching games, but oftentimes a lot of a after a retrieved kick where the space will be is with another kick. And and Russell's just exceptionally clever with that. He'd actually forced, I know we we're talking about later on after this, after this penalty try, he forced the forced that five meter line out with an excellent kick after an in infield more. He's just so sharp. And then so for him to there's just so so much kind of um there's so much intention about about his kicking and that you really saw that in in, the, in that try, in the head of the penalty try.
1: Charlie, how did you find uh, the interchangeability from the English back line from different players to step up at, at various different times in the game?
0: I, th- I, think, the, I think the main one was, was Joe, Joe Marchant being picked in the first place after um after having i think he, he was he, he tested positive covid the previous week and he obviously hadn't trained with the with the squad so him being in that starting lineup kind of underlined his value and i think him starting on the wing and then wanting Elliot Daly and Henry Slade on the field for their experience and for their kicking but that left them probably short of a line runner in midfield so what we're seeing was Joe Marching coming in to 13 um from those line out set plays in that same shape that they used in the autumn. So with um Joe Marchant hitting a hard line off first receiver Henry Slade. Um that was the main the main thing. I think with um with Max Malin's on the wing as that kind of additional fullback and the playmaker, you know, he's got a he's got a background of a fly half so he's always gonna be be roaming. So there was a bit of that. But that main that was the main kind of the big the big change of that inter- interchangeability as you say between between Daly and Marchant.
2: OK, Charlie, thanks as usual for your insight. Speak to you again later. Cheers, guys. Uh, Chris, let's move on to the Italy game, which is next for England. Um, you earlier on said you reckoned that Eddie Jones would pick his strongest 15. Are you certain of that, or might he be tempted to... Because depending how the games go, he's less likely to pick anyone else new. In any other game. So it's probably his only chance, this one.
1: Yeah, I, I understand that completely. It's just otherwise, if he doesn't pick them, they've had two weeks to this first game they've just played in Scotland. A lot of the guys would then have another week off. Yeah. Then it's a fallow week.
2: Yeah,
1: It's a long time as a player yeah. to, um, to be missing. And you want to play, especially if you've lost. You don't want to be left out. You don't want to be the yeah. guy who who's suddenly kind of giving yeah. someone else an opportunity to yeah. go. I think there will potentially be one or two changes. But, but only, one two. Like, only one or two. Only one or two. Yeah, like, like will Courtney come back in? Manu obviously played for Sale, came off the bench. Will he be given another game or two at Sale before coming back into the England squad? He looked very sharp um, because he just gives the backs that physicality. You know what, With Manu, um,
2: I, with Manu, I can't see the point. If he's fit, play him. Because he might exactly. not be fit for, for, <laughs> yeah. for, for you know for a few and games, So,
1: and he's he's that good I think he's that good a player makes that much difference and yeah. he has that much x factor he can just slot him yeah he can slot yeah. in. he's a smart player he's been around this squad enough um and yeah I think you're right I think put him against Italy someone like that he can get 60 minutes under his belt
2: yeah
1: or even put him off the bench so he gets half an hour on under yeah. him and then you look to start him two weeks later. Uh, but I think they would be the only two
2: uh, another point and I'm not being disrespectful to Italy here but Eng- England have never lost to Italy and they're not going to this time I don't think would you rather have a game which you can play yourself into and so on or or a Sterner test or does it matter you just want to get back on there
1: in terms of what, sorry. In terms
2: of the England players' psyche. Would, oh, okay, they, would you prefer to say, you know, I'll, I'll have France next or whatever? Or, or just, no, this is a better way to play, I don't know, play it through?
1: No, you, you want to get back into it. Because I know from the outside world, everyone be saying, like you said, they should they should win comfortably, go over to Rome and all that kind of stuff. But from their point of view, they'll know it. And it will be tough. It'll be tough for 50, 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then, generally, as these games go, they'll pull, like France did, they'll get a couple of tries towards the end and it will probably flatter the scoreline. But it is going to be tough and it's going to be tested and there are new combinations in that team as well in terms of people still working each other out, working out how to get the best out of each other. There's new people in the pack. Um, Would you even bring someone like a Joe Launchbury back in? He's been superb for Was since he's been back. Uh, He could be another one who adds that bit of, bit of firepower to get them over a game line gives them an extra little bit of size. Someone like him come back into an Italy game might not be the worst thing.
2: Well, um, you've got a situation here where Courtney Laws has been mentioned. Now, Owen Farrell is out. In his absence, Courtney Laws has had a limited number of games. If he comes back in, do you give the captaincy straight back to him? Or Tom Curry for a later... Thing, cause I, look, I, I I don't necessarily agree with Eddie Jones. Well, I definitely don't agree with him about no. the number eight experiment with Curry. But uh, as far as a potential leader, maybe so. He sees much more of him than I do in the in camp and sees his sort of persona. Um, do you therefore continue with the, um, the Curry thing, saying it's a thing going forward or do you give it back to Courtney Laws?
1: I think they would give it back to Courtney. I think he did superbly well in that kind of autumn series. Uh, played well, led well, made good decisions. Um, for me, Tom Curry's a fantastic place, fantastic leader. And actually, before, when Owen Fowler was actually injured in the autumn and there was a debate about oh, who was going to be picked, because obviously Owen was a late withdrawal, wasn't he? Uh, I actually thought it was going to be Tom Curry. Mm-hmm. So he has that much of a presence in the squad. He's that. As a player, I think he's fantastic. I think, like you said, he's a flanker. I don't think he's a number eight, um, and he's a great leader. He's a great leader as well, and he's going to continue to learn. But I think for this, it would go back to Courtney, and that would be my view on it.
2: Okay, well, look, let's look at the other games this weekend. Um, Ireland made light work of Wales' first game. Um, how much of a case was it Ireland being very good? Or Wales not being very good? Or a bit of both? I think
1: it was a bit of both. I think I think Ireland were superb defensively and had a breakdown. They looked well organised. There was a passage towards the end of the first half where I think Wales must have been camped on Ireland's 22 for about 10 minutes and didn't go anywhere. They just kept getting knocked back and turned over and they got there again and knocked back. I just thought they were extremely well organised. In attack, they... We always know they're going to do a lot of those kind of run-around plays, in kind of the sex and DNA and the Irish DNA, uh, which they do very well. But I think they threw a lot of different pitches at Wales. Of course, they played territory. But I thought Byrne was superb. Uh, Cronin was fantastic. Um, and their forwards had a real kind of firepower. I think there was always a question when CJ Stander left, who was going to come and be that mm-hmm. big physical presence for the Irish back row? Well, without I- a Stander, O'Brien, these type of guys who... Had to be massive characters for Ireland originally.
2: Well, I tell you what. What I think has worked in Ireland's favour is yeah, they've lost Sander, Ryan and Wavera. Uh, Aman is in in the same sort of camp as, a, as an out-out, you know, superb dog, you know, uh, of a forward and Wavera, a brutal but straight-on carrier. When you've got Conin, when you've got Kellen um, Doris, you've got ball players, um, and they've got they've got power as well. But they get their arms free. They offload. You know, they they link as well rather than looking for contact. They look for space as well. And to me, that's been one of the things that's enabled Andy Farrell to look beyond the the vision that uh, Joe Schmidt had probably perfected in terms of static kick, uh, you know, set plays that we do just extremely well to go to the next level where they can say, actually, we can do the first few bits, but when it breaks up, We've got really good ball players who are dynamic in not just a straightforward way.
1: Yeah, very much so. And I think look, the thing with rugby, and it will probably always be there being a physical sport. You have to win the game line. You have to have players who can get you over the game line time and again. And as soon as you can do that, the options are open up because... You look at the Irish front row and yes, they can all run over you, but also they all have the subtle skills in yeah. terms of being able to pull balls out the back to a, to a sexy who kind of waits behind it and they can go wide to tip to each other. Um, and all of a sudden, as a defender, that makes it so much harder because you can't just fly up and hit them yeah. because there's going to be so many different, and you can't just sit off and wait for them. So I think when you have that ability as well, it it's very tough to defend. Um and I think now they're starting to, like you said, not just have the, the pretty plays, which they've always had. They have that kind of that physical stance up front, which allows them to play a little bit more as well. Uh,
2: you work closely with Andy Farrell and with Stuart Lancaster. Uh, Stuart is not uh, part of the scene with Ireland, but he's very much part of the scene with Leinster, and we've heard a lot of good things about that. Um, what, what impact do you think... Uh, those two have made to the to the island court. And in, in what way have they made it?
1: Yeah, and I, I think exactly exactly that. For me, when I worked with Stuart, my skills developed massively. He was such an influence of of being able to play with the ball, being comfortable with the ball. And I think you can see that in especially you look at this Leinster Irish front row. Their ability to be comfortable on the ball, to keep the ball alive, whether that be offloads or short passes or anything like that. And look, we're not expecting fifty meter passes or anything. But close quarters stuff, which, which they're in. And I think with, with Andy as well, his ability to organise people defensively, I think we know what he can be like as a leader for leading Great Britain at a young age and Wigan and all that kind of stuff. But his ability to get messages across in a clear way uh, and organise defences, you look at that Irish defence, there was no one over committing to breakdowns. They committed at the right times. They were spread out. Uh, and they're both just great men to have in your camp, to be able to big you up, to build your confidence and, and kind of send you out there and say, look, this is what you need to do. You're good enough to go and do it. Go and do it.
2: Uh, as for France, look, uh, they got the bonus point win, um, which they were probably always going to do. It was quite a tough first half. Um, because it was Italy, without, without being disrespectful, how much can you actually take away from that win apart from it was, it was what was expected?
1: Yeah, exactly that. It was what was expected. It was it was tough conditions over in Paris by the looks of it as well. Um, were they scared initially? I, I don't think so. Italy, of course, scored a very nice try early on. Um, but yeah, they did what they had to do without really getting into fifth gear. Uh, they had some good moments. Their forwards were strong. They played again similarly through the channels, a couple of little sneaky picks through with offloads and stuff like that. But I think, yeah, they they weren't really tested, were they? So I think for them going into next week against Ireland, where Ireland were probably tested a little bit more, um, you would have thought they were probably a little bit more prepared than what France faced.
2: Well, France are lucky in this sense. They've had the Italy draw first away, but now they've got Ireland at home. Uh, As we know, statistically, it's proven that home advantage in the Six Nations is a real thing. So they must go in, I think, slight favourites just because of that. But they're going to face, you know, a, a challenge. It may well be the greatest challenge they face, I you know, I, I think. Um, how do you see this turning out? Where do you think it will turn? What do you think it will turn on?
1: I agree. I think this is bigger than the challenges they faced in the autumn when yeah. the All Blacks came and yeah. uh, whoever else they beat then. Um, I think it's going to be a massive game and, and potentially people will be saying whoever wins this wins the Six Nations is that got that kind of feel and, and that's why this tournament's great I think I personally think Ireland are going to go there and, and, and do a job I think they're going to come out I think they're going to move this French side around you look at this French side and, and watching it back their forwards are big and the back row are very athletic but they're big big men and I think with this Irish side like we spoke about a little bit earlier they have that ability to mix with big guys now and to get over the game and all that kind of stuff but they have the ability to play um, and I think if they can kind of combine the two I think they'll come and look this is a great game it's one I'm looking forward to watching uh, you look at likes of DuPont kind of stepping up as captain and I always find with that as well when you give it to your star guy it can either make them even better or it can just kind of reduce them a little bit and kind of make them a little bit nervous because they have to worry about other things and it's always hard from from being outside of camps because I've been in camps when people have said, "Oh, this guy should be this captain and that guy," and I'm sure you have as well. And you're thinking, "This guy? Why? How? how yeah, yeah. Like, he doesn't he doesn't lead at all and all this yeah. kind of stuff." But um, so without actually being in there and knowing the influence he can have, and I remember actually when I was at Harlequins and we went to Cast a couple of well, it was a long time ago now, and his young scrum half was playing for them. It was snow and it was horrible, and we were like the French were like the snow and all that kind of. Typical kind of cliches. And I had this young 17-year-old guy playing scrum half in mm-hmm. DuPont. And he was, he's not the biggest guy now. Back then he was small, but he was wide. And we are like, look, we need to get hold of this guy. He's he's a young kid. Who's this guy I think he is? We were trying to like late hit him, we were trying to tackle him off the ball. He was breaking tackles, he was scoring tries, he was chipping. We could we literally couldn't stop him. Mm. And this was a 17-year-old mm. kid. And I think from, from playing against him then and, and a couple of times, he's got that confidence. Yeah. And I think he's got that ability to, to change a game. And I think as a captain, if you can have that ability to spark
2: a team, is it's only a good thing. I'll tell you what, why don't we go to some questions? Because there have been lots, as you would imagine. A one from Bob. Am I wrong to be concerned uh, that Ben Young's is, I think, the only player to have won the number 9 shirt since the last World Cup, only 16 tests to go before the World Cup warm-ups. I'll I'll go first here. Um, I think that Ben Youngs has played really well in the Premiership this year. I think that is the reason that he was uh, called up. I still am not convinced that he is as sharp as he was. And when you look at England's ruck speed, especially in the first half against Scotland, when they got quite a lot of ball, they were going to be under three seconds for a lot of it. And when Ben got there and he just checked a little bit to look at his options, it went over three seconds to 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 four. Now, it doesn't sound much, but continually, and everyone's looking for under three seconds. That just means an extra second for the backline to do that. And Randall might well have done it. And I agree um, with you, Bob. We They've got to see Quirk or Randall or someone else before the uh, World Cup. And not just once or twice. They've got to give them... Uh, a number of runs because with the best player in the world, Ben Youngs might lose form or he might get injured. And then what do you do? You, you, I'm, I'm sorry, but Eddie Jones has got to start giving, uh, giving game time to, to these players. Chris, any comment? Yeah, look, I,
1: I think Ben is still the, the man at the moment in terms of that role, but who is next? And like you said, if he goes down this week, who's going to step I like Quirk, actually. I like Quirk, yeah. I think I think, he was, I think he, was, he was very good for sale against Quinns this weekend. Uh, he's quick, he's powerful. But like you said, maybe going into an Italy game, give him an opportunity or someone like that an opportunity and have Ben Youngs on the bench.
2: One from Alistair. Does the use of the term finishers change the mindset to they must be used because they're going to finish regardless of how well others are playing? No, I, th- I
1: think. Look, as 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 a player, you always want to stay on the pitch as long as possible, especially in the tight games, the good games. Maybe if you're winning comfortably, you're a little bit sore, or tired, and then, then fair enough. as a player, you don't really want to get want, want to go off. But it it is that squad, and when we actually had with Eddie Jones as well, when we actually had kind of leadership meetings, a lot of the time the finishers would be in there, whereas normally the the subs or finishers whatever it be wouldn't be in there because a lot of people might view them as lesser players or all this kind of stuff. But they would be the ones who are on the pitch in those final dying and probably moment-defying moments. So they were probably more important, and that's how we saw it. And it was just a different way yeah. of looking at it and a different way of, actually, you're right, yeah. They're going to be the ones closing out a game um, and need to be there.
2: Well, in a general point, I mean, I spoke to Eddie about this. I was quite specific about this, and he swore to me that he didn't get all the technical readouts from the bench about, you know, where the hits are going, whether the, you know, whether the percentages were going down. He said, I don't have time. He said, I go on a gut feel. I don't have planned ones. I said, come on. You, you, I said, it's so regular. You must. He said, no. He said, I have in mind certain things. He said, but I do not, I promise you, say to players, you're getting 40, you're getting 55. I do this that, and the other. Um, I'd, I'd do it on the run. There, um, but actually, therefore, I said to him, well, if that is the case, you are completely responsible, aren't you, Eddie, for everything that goes on? Because you can't, you can't pass it on to so-and-so and say, well, he told me that um, you know, his, his hits were decreasing by, by whatever, whatever. That, that remains... I, th- I think a lot of this comes down to this, Chris. And I, I won't ask you for a comment, but if you, f- if, if you make substitutions and you win the game, they're all great. And if you don't, they're not. But as we spoke to Charlie earlier on, everything was going fine, even with the subs, until that Luke Calendiki moment, and no one could have predicted that. Scotland exploited it very well, not just because of the second kick, but because particularly the first kick and the way they dragged Joe Marchant across there. Yeah, but
1: no, on, on that though, you like they—they they definitely don't look at data. They definitely don't. But generally, the front rows—they're working hard. And you can, even when you watch a game, you know if a guy's playing well or not playing well. And you think about a manager who knows his player, who trains with his player kind of every single day of the week. They know them ins and outs. Are they carrying something a little bit differently? Maybe a guy, I don't know, say a courtney comes back. Has he been carrying a knock? Is he likely to last in 80 minutes? Is it sensible for him to play in 80 minutes? Or is it sensible? So someone like him, they won't be like, okay, we want to get 50, 60 out of you. So then they'll tell him, of course, things can change in the game if it feels good. So there are a lot of different things. But, yeah, managers don't look at the stats and say, OK, this guy has hit seven rocks, He's made 12 tackles. He's, they don't look at that. You, you have a feel, because even as a spectator...
2: Can I ask you this? Because it wasn't the same when I played. What difference is there genuinely between, say, say, a, um, say an atology playing 60 minutes or 80? Is it huge?
1: What, how you feel the next day?
2: Yeah, Or, or what, what you might have taken out of Tankham for next next week and so on.
1: Yeah, it, it really does. And I was a player who who generally played a lot of 80 minutes. Um, I was a player who who very rarely kind of came off, um, whether that be with, with Quinns or England. And for myself, when I did come off, the difference you felt the following day, and even speaking to a lot of the props who come off regularly, and if you play 56, you could probably go do a session the next day. Mm-hmm it's that different. Of course, there are games where you get a bad knock and you're aching or or something like that which could happen at any point. But yeah, it does make it a big difference and it leaves a lot more in the tank.
2: Question for Paul. How important is winning a Grand Slam before a World Cup attempt? Personally, I would have thought pretty vital with regards to confidence and turning that when winning mentality. Well, Paul, it's like this. If you do win a Grand Slam, you know you you definitely know you can beat everybody if it's the one before, um, which is something. But it's not the defining factor. In World Cups, the defining factor is you start reasonably well and you just get better. And you have a bit of luck on the way as well. What happens before a World Cup has some influence, but it doesn't have the seminal influence. Um, Oliver, question. What is your opinion of a sanction of the law regarding intentional knock-on? Both a penalty try and a sim bin seems harsh as an England fan. No problem with how it played out, that's the law, but he just feels that a double sanction is potentially unfair. Chris?
1: Yeah, I agree. I've put it as one or the other, actually. I've put it either be yellow or a thing, but uh, maybe that's me kind of looking at it with kind of a glass half full and looking at it from an English point of view, and I'm sure if you asked a Scottish person, they would be like, yes, definitely, he should be uh, having that. But, yeah, it, it is what it is, and if that is the law, it's it's mm-hmm. been agreed upon.
2: Aidan, what about playing Jack Noll at centre? I believe he could do a good job there. Jelly was ineffective on Saturday. Also mentioned by Tom May last week. Well, agent, it's like this. Um, yeah, Jack Nowell might do well, but he might not. Um, I'm not. I don't necessarily agree that uh, that Elliot Jelly was ineffective on Saturday. I thought. I I do, I genuinely think Elliot is a thirteen anyway. I really do, and I wish he'd been given more time there because I think he's got the left foot and the skills and an outside break with ball in both hands that that would make that there you know? and if he had two along inside him I think that would be a fairly potent com- combination uh, or him or, 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 or Henry Slade in, indeed so um, yeah you, you could play Jack Nol at centre but I'd, I'd, I'd prefer Jack Nol to play out of his skin and to be picked on the wing personally well that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's full contact with the Telegraph A big thanks to my co-host, Cribs Swabshaw, and to my guest, Charlie Morgan, for joining me. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can check out all our previous episodes by subscribing to the Full Contact podcast channel. I'll be back next week alongside Rachel Burford to recap week two of the Six Nations. And can I just say, finally, to the thousands, and there were thousands of you, and I'm very humbled uh, by this, of you who listen to the podcast and follow me on Twitter, who left some very, very kind comments after my final Men's Six Nations game last week. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was overwhelmed.